Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the praises of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'll bless us this morning as we come for you at this time of the offering, and just pray that you'll bless our church, bless us individually as we are obedient to you, as we 
offer these uh, gifts to you. I just pray you'll bless them to uh, the furtherance of your kingdom. Lord, I just pray you'll continue to be with us during our service. Real Brother Wayne, as he brings the message, and I just pray you'll bless him and that the people who hear the message will return uh, their hearts to you and that they will make the decisions that, that need to be made. So we ask in thy name. Amen. You're the one who breaks my fall. 
as we have our worship time, as we have our fellowship time to uh, see in each other the spark of you and the Christ that lives in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys. Well, we've been in a series on theology, and this concludes it today. And the sermon today is on the end times. What's going to happen in the end? So the sermon is entitled, And in Conclusion, for a number of reasons. Um, there's an outline in your worship bulletin. And the, the text is Revelation 21, which is John's revelation given by God of heaven. What we can expect. I think I may have used this passage a couple weeks ago when I preached on heaven. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, as we think about how this world is going to come to an end one day, 
and what you're going to be doing in it, even as you are now. Help us to prepare right now for that sure and certain eventuality. And Father, if there's anyone not ready today for the last times, convict them even now through this message so that when we leave here, everyone here within the sound of my voice will know their destination will be in heaven with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've talked about a lot of things in theology, and what I've tried to do is just simplify it so you can can think about it and take it home and talk about it maybe over lunch or in the days to come. The theological word for the end times is eschatology. Eschatology, and it comes from the Greek word eschaton that means end times or last times, last things. It's all about the end of times, and we have a natural bent, a natural curiosity that we want to know how things are going to end up, don't we? We want to know what's around the corner. We want to know what's over the bend. We, we uh, shake Christmas presents under the tree. We uh, take exit polls when there's election times. And if the English teachers here will forgive me, I have to admit that it's, if it's a really good book and I just can't stand it, I'll read the last few pages before I finish it. Anybody else here cheat like that? Anybody else not telling the truth? Okay. So, so we like to know how things are going to end up. We want to know what's going to happen. Let me, this morning, offer some suggestions and, and kind of point the way between what people say is going to happen and what God's going to say is going to happen because it's two different things. And what I'd like to do is separate what we cannot know from what we can know. We're going to talk about what we cannot know about the end times first, and then we'll talk about what we can know. The first thing is what we cannot know. Uh, We cannot know when the end is going to come. Isn't that right? We cannot know when. Mark 13, 32. Let me flip over to that. Says this. But of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, who's saying this? Jesus is saying that no one knows of that day or hour when the end is going to come. Not the angels, nor the Son, not even Jesus, but only the Father in heaven knows when the end of times is going to come. Now, Jesus having said that, Does it not strike you as odd that every so often somebody's going to stand up and pronounce that they know when the end of time is going to come? Does that not seem odd to you? Something that Jesus doesn't know, they think they can know. And I just don't get it. Um, There's a lot of fuss last year when people realized that the end of the Mayan calendar is going to come up on December 21st, 2012. Now, does that mean that the Mayans predict the end of the world is December 21st, 2012? No. That just means that's the end of their calendar, and the new calendar is going to start over again. I was online looking this up, and I found a book about prophecies. And this guy named Robert Weintraub predicts the end time is May 27th, 2012. And all I have to say is I hope he sells as many books as he can before 
May 27, 2012, because I have a feeling on May 28, those books are going to be on the clearance table. That's just the way it goes. People predict when the end of time is going to come, and I just don't get it because Jesus said, hey, I don't know the day or hour. Only the Father knows. So why can't we just leave it at that? People come up to me from time to time and they say, Brother Wayne, don't you think we're in the last days? I mean, look, the Bible says before the end comes, there'll be wars and rumors and wars and children will rise up against parents and there'll be uh, earthquakes and, and natural disasters. And my response is usually something like, well, you know, maybe we are and maybe we aren't. Because there's always been wars and rumors of wars. And there have always been rebellious children. And there have always been natural disasters like earthquakes. So I think the lesson in this is that whenever it comes, and Jesus told us without a doubt it's going to come, I think the point is we need to be prepared. And we need to be prepared today. Because we don't know the day or hour when the end times will be. Not the Son, not the angels in heaven, but only the Father. And when the end comes, it'll be too late to prepare. So, um, there were, there were uh, Christians in, in Paul's day living in Thessalonica, and they believed that the end was going to come. You know, there are reasons why we don't know when the end is going to come. If we thought the end was going to come next week, a lot of people would be rushing around, panicking and freaking out. A lot, of, a lot of people in Thessalonica actually quit work. And I have a feeling, you know, they got their lounge chairs and they went up on the hillside and just waited for the end to come. And Paul, what did Paul say? He said, basically, if, if a man will not work, let him not eat. And then he went on to say, you know, what to expect before the end times. And basically what he wanted... What, he's, what Paul's counsel was is that we should continue doing what we're doing and be prepared all along the way. So that's the point of when's it going to happen. We don't know, so be prepared. The second thing is we can't really know how the end is going to come. A lot of people have spent a lot of time dis- dissecting the book of Revelation. Um, I have heard so many sermons on decoding revelation, or so many sermons on what to expect when the end time comes. And I have an opinion about that. I think people who focus on those details in Revelation and in 2 Thessalonians and in other isolated bits and pieces across the New Testament are trying to focus on the details and they're missing the big picture. They can't see the forest for the trees. And my thought is this. If God had intended the book of Revelation to be a timetable, a chart of what to expect in times, don't you think he would have made it plainer? God's whole purpose in revealing himself to us was to have a relationship with us. And all throughout the pages of Scripture, God is in the business of revealing himself to us. And when we still didn't get it, he came himself in the form of Jesus Christ to reveal himself to us so that we would know all that we needed to know to be in a relationship with him. So I think if God had wanted us to know a specific timetable and chart 
about what's going to happen at the end times, he would have made it plainer. Instead, in the book of Revelation, the the main purpose of that book is to offer encouragement for persecuted Christians in the first century. And it offers encouragement for Christians everywhere today as well. The book of Revelation is written to to Christians who are being persecuted and it uses codes and it uses numbers and it uses colors and it uses symbols that the Jewish people that John is writing to would understand, but the army, the Roman armies persecuting them would not understand. It's kind of like slipping a letter. If If you're a POW and you know your captors are going to read everything that you write, you know how you write things that that your reader will understand, but your captors will not. And that's what John's doing. He's basically a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, isolated, and he's writing in a language that the Jewish people, that he wants to get his communication to, will understand. But the occupying Roman forces will not, and so they'll let the letters pass. And so that's why Revelation has all these codes and symbols and colors and numbers and and signs, because the Jews could understand it, the Romans could not. And John, John says, I know you're, you're being persecuted. I know it's tough. I know things around you are happening that is horrible, but I want you to know how it's all going to end out. God's going to be victorious. So you just hang in there. You just persevere. Be patient. Take whatever comes and know that in the final battle, God has already won the victory. And that's what John is trying to communicate in the book of Revelation. And and people who take bits and pieces from that book and try to weave together a story of end times, I think are missing the picture. It was intended to encourage persecuted Christians. So we can't know when, we can't know how. What can we know? about the last times. Well, we can know there's going to be a judgment. I know Christians don't like to think about this because, you know, my hand goes up, (laughs) wait a minute, I'm already forgiven. I don't have to worry about the judgment. Let me just read some scripture here from the New Testament. Hebrews 9.27. Just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Revelation 20.12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. I know that makes us uncomfortable. And and heaven knows if all of our sins were held up in front of us this morning, we would all go shrieking into the streets, wouldn't we? (laughs) But how can life have meaning if there is not some form of final judgment? I mean, think about it. I looked up the, ten, the, the most evil men in the world. Who are some names that come to mind? Hitler, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Ayatollah Khomeini, Pol Pot. You remember the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? Pol Pot. Hirohito, emperor of Japan that massacred Chinese. All these men are responsible for the deaths, not just of thousands or tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands. I think it really does matter how you treat people on earth. It matters how you relate to each other. 
here on earth. Now, there were some people in Paul's day who said, well, if we're forgiven, it doesn't really matter what we do here on earth. And Paul says very plainly in Romans 6, 1, are we to continue in sin that great... I mean, they, they, these Christians argued, matter of fact, the more we sin, the more there is need for grace. The more grace will abound. And Paul said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says a Greek phrase, he says, meganoito, and I cannot translate that into English for you because it is too harsh. But basically it means... Absolutely not. You're not to continue in sin that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's what Paul argued. So don't think because you're a Christian that you can do anything you want to do and stand before God on judgment day and not answer for it. I love the story, and I know I've told it before, but y'all have short-term memories failure, so I can tell it again. There's a, a rural church, I heard a story about a rural church that, that was a poor church and it didn't even own the land right next to it. And uh, matter of fact, they didn't have air conditioning, so the windows, we actually had our church in Kentucky prop the windows open with tobacco sticks. So you know what that's like. Well, next, right next to the church, this man on a field, and he didn't think much of the church, he didn't think much of their God, he didn't think much of their worship. So he used to delight in plowing his field every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. And you can imagine sitting in church trying to worship and pray while this tractor is rattling up and down the rows of the field next, next to you every Sunday at 11 a.m. This went on for the whole growing season. Finally, in October, the farmer had a bumper crop. And he wrote a letter to the pastor. He said, obviously, there is no God, or he wouldn't have put up with such arrogance. And obviously, there is no judgment, because I have done as I pleased, and I've had a bumper crop in October. And the pastor wrote back a letter to the man, one sentence, and it said, God does not settle his accounts in October. God does not settle his accounts in October. And what I want you to know, friends, is that Judgment Day is coming. And it may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, and it may not be October, but it is coming. And one day we're going to be standing before the judge, and our list of sins is going to be read. And our only hope is in the chief counsel who is standing beside us, Jesus Christ. And the judge is going to pronounce guilty, but our counsel is going to say, Judge, I have paid his fine in full. And in our courts, this wouldn't happen, but you see, that I know that our counsel is going to win because the judge is his father. And the judge is going to say, case dismissed. We don't have to serve our sentence, but there will be a time of judgment when we will hear the good and the bad and the sentence pronounced. All right, so we do know there'll be a judgment. 
The second thing we know is that there's going to be an eternal destination. And I preached two sermons on this in recent weeks, one on hell and one on heaven. And that's what I'm talking about. There, there will be a time of judgment where some are going to heaven and some are going to hell. And we know from the Bible that the road to, to heaven is narrow and few there are that find it. And the road to hell is broad and many there are that go. But what I want you to know is that these two places are very real. We may not see a castle in the sky that's heaven. We may not see a a hole in the earth with a pit and fire and people screaming where there's hell. But I want you to know that they're real. Some people argue that hell cannot be real because a loving God would not be so cruel as to send people to hell. And my response to that is hell is not evidence of God's nature, it's evidence of our freedom and the natural consequences of the choices that we make. In other words, if we spend our lives rejecting God, in time of judgment, he's going to say, I never knew him. Depart from me. It's not because he wants to, it's it's a result of our choices and our freedom. So don't blame God. You know, we've tried to describe what hell is going to be like, and what I tried to portray in those two sermons is heaven is even better than (coughs) our words can describe, and hell is even worse than our words can describe. Fisher Humphreys is a theology professor. Uh, It used to be at New Orleans Seminary. I think he might be at Samford now. But uh, Baptist theology, pardon? He was at Beeson Divinity School in Samford. Uh, He portrays the reality of hell with an interesting story in one of his books. He says, a bank robber in the commission of a crime is shot to death. And a man appears in a white suit, telling him he's his guardian angel, and uh, takes him to his afterlife. And, and And the man in the white suit said, it's my job to give you anything you wanted. And so the bank robber said, okay, I want a house with... Nice furnishings, lots of food, lots of alcohol, lots of friends, lots of parties. And he has it. After a few years, he gets bored. He says, I know what I want to do. I want to go to a pool hall and have some fun. So this, this messenger takes him to a pool hall. And, and not only does he play pool, but every ball he hits, he sinks. After a few years of that, he's bored. He says, I know, robbing banks was always a thrill for me. Let's go rob some banks. And so... They go and rob banks, and every bank robbery goes off without a hitch. And he has more money than he knows what to do with, and after a few years he says, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm bored. And finally, he turns to this this man who's been sent to him and says, you know what, I think there's been some mistake made. On earth, I was a bad guy. I should be in hell with the other bad guys, not in heaven. And the man turned to him and said, I think you made a mistake. What made you think this was heaven? Hell is going to be separation from God. And it's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's indescribable what that suffering is going to be like. Do we have it all figured out? Absolutely not. But back in 
The Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 8, verse 25. I think we can leave it at this and be satisfied. The author says, Will not the judge of the earth do what's right? We can trust God just to do what's right and not worry about it even further. There'll be judgment. There'll be a final destination. Thirdly, we know in the end there'll be renewal. And what I mean by that is that everything that is old will become new. New is, is an important word in the Bible, especially the New Testament, the New Covenant, because it talks about a new creation, a new birth, a new heaven, and a new earth. Everything is made new in heaven. Because lives get changed when God enters into somebody's heart. And that's the basic thing I want to say about newness. I, my, my favorite saying on this is my screensaver on my computer. After a few minutes, it pops up, and it just reminds me. It says, the greatest argument for Christianity is a transformed life. The greatest argument for Christianity is a transformed life. And when you really see, I want you to think about somebody who was living for the world. And God entered into their heart and changed their lives from the inside out. And you saw beyond the shadow of a doubt that a new person had been born again. That's this renewal that Jesus makes possible here on earth where heaven begins. Here we can have abundant life right here. And then eternal life when we get to heaven. So in conclusion, which is the title of the sermon and the series... What can we expect about eschatology, about the end times? Well, I can tell you, the when and the how are still kind of sketchy. But we can know at the end times there will be a final judgment, there will be a final destination, and there will be renewal. I love the story of the missionary who served his entire life on the mission field. And he was finally coming home to America aboard ship. His wife had died on the mission field. Everything he had was on the mission field. And he was, he was alone as they were sailing home. As they arrived near the port, he saw at a distance people gathered at the dock. They had a banner. And in big letters he could read, Welcome Home. There was a band ready to play, and there were people with streamers and and all kinds of things ready to cheer upon his arrival. But as he got a little bit closer to the dock, he read underneath Welcome Home, he read the name of a movie star. Apparently, aboard the same ship was a movie star who had been filming on location in Europe and was coming back home to America as well. And he realized that all of the fanfare, all of the people, all the signs, all the streamers were not for him before this movie star who had been in Europe for a few weeks and not a missionary who had been overseas for 50 years. And it was tough. And he started thinking, why, Lord? 
Why? I have served you faithfully all these years. Why no homecoming for me? And as distinctly as someone standing beside him speaking, he heard God say, Son, you're not home yet. We sang the song this morning, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Those are the words at the end of 2 Corinthians. The Greek is Maranatha. I think we have some Maranatha Baptist churches. It means come quickly. I hope that's your prayer today because you're ready and you're prepared. And we can sing Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Shall we pray? Father, as we, as we think about the end times, it's just our nature. You know, we are basically curious. And uh, we want to know what's, what's over the bend. And so every once in a while, somebody will stand up and say, they know. And a group of people will follow along after them. <clears throat> but pretty plainly in the Bible... You have told us that we don't need to know the what and the how or the when. To leave that up to you and to trust you. Just to do what's right. And we know you will. We do have the ample warnings of a judgment and a final destination and the encouragement of renewal that will happen when Jesus comes to take us home. In the end of this-